Well, Harvest, we are in uh, continuing our time through the book of Revelation. We're kind of in a unique spot right now. We're, we're taking a few Sundays to hit a few things that um, we've wanted to touch on. Uh, it's been April since we started. Uh, we began this series. I will say this, I, I never intentioned, I did not have on the sermon planning schedule to actually take a Sunday where I would just sit with you and really kind of talk about what I think the book of Revelation is laying out from a timeline perspective. Uh, why would I not have that on the schedule? Um, well, because so often timeline talk stuff, like what's happening in the future, what does the Bible say about what's happening in the future, so often ends up getting into these discussions of what I think versus what you think. And uh, I'm in so much of that. It, it's just, listen, the whole objective of this series has been about seeing Jesus, okay? And less me, more Jesus. And that's been the goal and the objective in that. And, and so that's why I didn't put it in there. And, and I, I just didn't want to have us get kind of caught in these often divisive debates on what you and I think about some of the nitty gritties. And I'll just tell you, sometimes those just bore me and frustrate me because it's like, let's just see Jesus, okay? Let's just see Jesus really, really, really big. Let's go there and then let's make disciples for Jesus. That, that's where I'm really wired and fired up about uh, however, I remember when in 2009, Karen and I were on a bus tour, an actual bus tour with an actual bus and an actual bus tour guide, and uh, it was in Israel, and uh, it was just a wonderful trip. And I remember our tour guide, Avi. Avi was in his 70s. He was uh, a Jewish man. I'm not sure yet to this day whether he was a believer, whether he was a Messianic Jew or not. I'm still not quite sure. But he has been through every war and involved over in Israel in all these times ever since Israel became a nation again in 1948. And this guy is just a stunning man. He had two doctorates, I think, and just a lovely, lovely guy. On the, anyway, on the trip... There were times where we would ask Avi, hey, Avi, what do you think? And, and it was really interesting, almost frustrating at times, because he, he really evaded going there. I, I understand why now. Because he didn't want to make the trip about what he thought. He wanted to make the trip about us experiencing it together and seeing the whole of it. And, and so in that process, I, I get where Avi was coming, and yet there were some times where I would might say he caved in. And uh, we ganged up on him enough to where he caved in and, and we said, tell us what you think. And he would tell us. And I really appreciated the times it, it, when he told us. It got help us to get to know him better. But he brought some insight as a Jewish man with some of the things that were what were going on that was insight that I never would have had before. And I appreciate it. So today, this tour guide is caving in. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have had questions over the time, you know, are you going to tell what you think about the timeline things of how things are going to move, what Revelation says, and I've been pushing that off, but, but uh, I am going to do that. That's today. Next Sunday, we're going to get into Revelation chapter 21. I look forward to that. But well, let me say this. Um, I'm going to tell you uh, my timeline here in a little bit, but I'm going to maybe do it in a way you're not expecting, but it's my timeline, and I'm going to tell it the way I want to, Okay. And, and actually, I want to tell it in the full of the redemptive story that God has laid out. Why? 
What really, uh, earlier this week, what really grabbed a hold of my attention was, was reading a book that our small group is going through. It's by Sky Jathani. It's called With. And I read this statement here uh, that you can see on the screen. And it goes like this. He said in his book, It is reassuring to know that the entire creation is marching forward to a day of deliverance. And that the seemingly random events of history serve a greater purpose. And then I love this next statement. We need moments to steal away from the chaos of the world in order to, by the way, chaos of the world? We all there? Okay. Chaos of the world in order to reconnect with the greater narrative of God that promises hope for all creation. And he says, we place our story in the context of his story. And we remember there, essentially, where hope is to be found. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be putting the story, as I think it uh, is laid out or flows out of Revelation, within the context of the whole. But before I do that, I'm actually going to take about 15 minutes here to talk about three items that I think actually all carry into the discussion. But there was a Sunday when St. Vincent, I set that aside. Uh, I'm going to cover a few things in here that was supposed to be an entire Sunday. And uh, so here we go. Uh, Three things. Number one, I want to remind us of our five pictures that brought us into this series of our thinking. And the first of those pictures is on the screen, Jesus Christ Revealed. This whole series, walking through the book of Revelation, is that we would see Jesus bigger. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. He is the, he is the revealer of and the one being revealed. He is the source and the subject of the book of Revelation. Picture number two, we're going about this in a bus tour-like fashion. Uh, I get to pick the bus, <laughs> that's the bus that, that I like. So we're doing this in a bus tour. What do I mean by that is that this is one, this is a first-timer's bus tour, all right? As a church family, this is the first time we've ever stepped into uh, apocalyptic, prophetic kind of literature like this in the scriptures. And, and so it's a first-timer's, it's not an advanced class. Now I'll say this lovingly to all you eschatology geeks, this isn't first and foremost directed at you, this is a first-timer's tour together. You're fine to be a part of it and, and speak into it, but, but this is a first-timers on this bus tour. Bus tours also experience it together. This is part of the plan for us as a church to go through this together with it and work it through. And buses go site by site. We're going chapter by chapter. Big part of what I have not done is gone to the end or future chapters and bring them into earlier chapters. I'm trying to take them like sight by sight as you would move along, almost like the very first readers of the book trying to go through it. That's picture number two. Picture number three is uh, laying out the pieces of Revelation. I've used this illustration that, you know, the Bible has a lot more pieces of eschatology, of end times talk, than other places of the Bible, but we're just doing Revelation on the picture of the fuselage here. We are not doing a systematic theology study of eschatology, and if you don't know what I mean by that, good. 
Okay, we're not doing from beginning to end of the Bible, all the Bible, Daniel, Thessalonians, Olivet Discourse, all brought in. We're just doing Revelation, learning how to study a book like that. So it's not been an assembly focus, it's been kind of laying out the pieces. Picture number four, Picasso, Guernica. In his picture here, uh, I've used this to illustrate the idea that uh, the craziness of the imagery in Picasso's painting had meaning to it. And his painting is not an open invitation for us to interpret it however we want. The, the, the question is, is what did the painter mean in his illustrations because he had an intended meaning behind the pictures that he painted. And so that's just represented when you go to Revelation. It's got lots of imagery, but that is not an open invitation for 20 different ideas on it. We want to search what the original author, the original painter, what God meant by that. And sometimes that means we go, I'm not quite sure. I'm just not quite sure, but that's where we're, we're hunting for. Picture number five, to accomplish these pictures, I've asked that we enter this process taking off what might be some theological preferred frameworks that we might have going into the book of Revelation. For instance, someone who says, I'm a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib person, or I'm a pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, or I'm a, uh, 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 you fill in the blank, Okay. Uh, whatever that might be, I'm just saying, listen, let's approach the book not shaping the book from our framework. Let's let the book shape our theological framework. And I think that's a hard thing. I'll tell you, that comes out of much of my research and development background. I learned in the past that too often you get channeled in and you just go there in the development of devices and you have to step back and just clear everything you've thought before and approach it brand new with that, and we've been seeking to do that, okay? So that's the first part, the five pictures. The next of the, of the three ones is, uh, Pastor Doug, what interpretive framework are you coming from? Uh, and this comes out of last Sunday. If you weren't here last Sunday, we talked about these interpretive frameworks here, and, and I'll tell you kind of the, uh, the modern-day theological, politically correct answer to that would be, uh, I'm an eclectic. I, I take all from all of them, and you know, just because that's the easy kind of way to answer things nowadays. But, uh, and a big part of me wants to do that because I'll tell you here in a minute, there are aspects of exegetical truth in every one of those approaches. But also, I'm just being very transparent with you, there's a tad of rebel in me that just wants to do it to annoy people. Uh, certain people who might have a perspective on it, but I'm just being honest um, with it. I shouldn't do that, so I'm not going to take it that way. Here's how I would answer the question. What interpretive framework, where am I coming from? I have sought to take off my theological framework glasses and go after, I would say, after going through 20 chapters now with the book of Revelation, I would answer this way. I would say, one, I'm not coming from a preterist perspective. I think it misrepresents ancient apocalyptic literature. That's where everything happened back in 70 AD. I'm not, I don't think that's the case. Uh, uh, apocalyptic literature back in the day was understood that the imagery was understating the reality. And uh, that whole view has to take the view that the apocalyptic literature is way overstating the reality back then. And I just don't take it. Uh, there's a number of other reasons I'm just going to hold off on those. Uh, one more I will add is I do think that they miss the fact that prophecy of Scripture oftentimes has both a direct application in its day, but not a full fulfillment until a future time. 
And I think that's the case for Revelation, where there were things that you could see coming out of history of 70 AD and into 95 AD that have interesting applications and shadows, even over history, but are not the fulfillment of. Uh, So I'm not preterism. I would say I'm not a historicist. Uh, That's kind of a fanciful way of seeing all of Western history in it. I just don't think it's a substantiated structure for that. I would also say after 20 chapters of this that I wouldn't technically take the idealist perspective. Uh, I I don't agree with the approach or the exegetical premise that the images and the numbers should first be understood symbolically. Uh, I think that view is taken from a particular theological framework that requires that, uh, and that's that the universal church is the entity. There is no plan for Israel in God's future plan, and I think that comes out of the fact that from the middle first century to the middle 21st 20th century, that there was no Israel, anyone on anyone's map or globe. There was no nation. And so when there is no nation of Israel, how could God have a plan or a purpose for them? Um, So I would have to say I'm not idealist. So that kind of leaves me, uh, if you want to bucket me, um, I'm kind of in this futurist. Uh, I am, after these 20 chapters, asking the question, what does the text naturally say? And out of that over 20 chapters, I think you can look at the book of Revelation and go, it is saying something. And I think it is understandable uh, on on the whole. Uh, Also, I just would say, I think the other viewpoints come out of kind of hang-up issues, theological framework issues, uh, no Israel on the map, those kinds of things. So here's where I would say exegetical truth in each. Do we see 70 AD history, 95 AD, and other history realities in the book of Revelation? I think there are some things. There's some shadows, if you will. Shadows yet of what's to come. Uh, Does Revelation contain symbolic imagery with symbolic meaning? It does. It does. Can Revelation be understood plainly and naturally? Yes, I believe that it can. So um, I would fit more in that futurist realm of it. Now, last thing uh, before I lose you completely Uh, For some of you geekazoids, you're doing great, and this is firing you up. For others, you're about ready to uh, say, please, Doug, get on with it. Um, Let me just say this. Three small subjects. um, Three small subjects that are important to timeline discussion. First one is the issue of the rapture. I'm sure you've probably heard of that word. Uh, I would say this. As we've gone through Revelation, uh, the only way you can place the rapture in Revelation is by bringing it into the book of Revelation. So do I think that Scripture teaches a rapture? Yes, I do. Uh, Daniel, Thessalonians, uh, all of it, discourse, other places. Uh, we could talk about that another day. But I do not think that the book of Revelation teaches that. Why am I bringing this up? Because of this. I think this is so important, understanding the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation's central focus is helping God's people see the end war so that they would live as warrior conquerors in the now of that war. Okay? By seeing the end war, it gives us the ability to have faith and perseverance to continue in the now war. All right? And it's just a huge issue with that coming out of Revelation in this. Listen, Revelation is not telling the believer when you can get out. Revelation's point is telling you the war so that while you are in it, 
you fight strong for Christ. Now, Doug, what's your rapture view? Here it is. I pray for pre-trib rapture because I want out. And I'm just being totally honest with you. I pray for pre-trib rapture but, because I want out, but I will also say this. I'm actually in the mindset to where I'm thinking as I'm going through the book of Revelation. Am I prepared to handle stuff like that? Would I stand? I want to be a warrior for Christ like that. Because if God has it as a mid or post, I want to last for his glory in it. How's that for wimping out? Subject number two, the seal trumpet bowl judgments. You can see here we've gone through the seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. There's three different ways to look at that. One way is they call recapitulation where they take those seven and they stack. So all of number one are the same. Number two are the same judgment. Number three, they're repeating them but with a little bit different angle with that. I understand where they're coming from. There are some similarities but I think there's enough differentiations that I don't think that's the approach to do that. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is actually to see them all is just running uh, on so there's 21 full judgments with that coming out I, I think you have problems with the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet what is the judgment in that and that's where the last view the third view is what they call the telescopic view of these judgments and this, that's actually where I would come from I think after going through this there's six seal judgments then the seventh seal is actually containing the trumpets and the bowls so the seventh seal is not a judgment. It's actually the containment of those that then are laid out. You come up to this trumpet that also the seven, bo- the seven bowls are contained within the seventh trumpet. So essentially there's 19 judgments in that. I'm done with that topic. Subject number three, the thousand years. Um, three views on this. The thousand years of Revelation chapter 20, uh, amillennial view, premillennial view, postmillennial view. Postmillennial view views that what Revelation is saying is life is going to get, the chapter 20 is saying that life is going to get better and better, moving things almost towards a Christian church on earth kind of situation. I'm not that. I just don't see that happening. I think things are going to get worse. Uh, Amillennial view would be saying that we are, the thousand years is not an actual thousand years. It's a concept. We are living in the, um, in the millennium now would be that view. The third view would be the premillennial. That means that we are coming through a period of time we're going to hit to where then we have an actual thousand years. This is actually where I'm at, and you'll hear about it here in a little bit. I am premill. Uh, you can box me in that, okay? All right, you with me? All right, because I realize this is so like not a preaching day but this is more like a class day, but hear, hear me on this. Um, these things have some implication and application for some of you. They're answering some questions for you, for others of you. I don't want them to confuse you. I just want for you to go, okay, now what do you have to say? Here's what I have to say now. I want to talk to you about what I think, book of Revelation, how things move through the book of Revelation, and I want to do that in the format of God's entire redemptive story. So would you please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Here's what I'm going to be asking today. This may seem not normal for you, but I'm actually not going to be reading texts out of Scripture. But I would please ask that as I make references to sections in the Bible, would you turn there 
and then uh, and just look at it. I believe there's something really important about seeing this and following this, even moving the pages or sliding the screen to be able to see God's word and how these things pull out. And I want to start in Genesis 1. All right. I'm going to tell the story within a picture story. Okay? Hang with me here. Lord, help us. Genesis chapter 1. God begins his story as we know it is a grand, glorious story. In the beginning, God created. We see in the text he created the heavens and the earth. Now, I would just like for you at this moment to picture this. Uh, I'm working from a picture scene, as you can see behind me. In the beginning, consider the earth as like this stadium, okay? It's a stadium that can look out upon the heavens that God has created. It has no roof on it. It's an open field stadium, but that's the earth and where I'm going here. Walk with me through this uh, timeline of God's redemptive history in a stadium. God's created the stadium. He's created the heavens. He's created the stadium such that we can look out upon the heavens. A God in the beginning, somewhere in the beginning of time, also created myriads and myriads of angelic beings. Beings that were to be love-receiving that were to be love-giving, glory-giving to God beings, and God created them. Somewhere in time, uh, those, uh, part of those beings led by one of the most beautiful, uh, glorious, glory-giving, angelic beings that was created, uh, walked away, wanted to be able to put himself, itself, in God's place, revolted against God, and God in that move at that time cast them down, I'm going to say it this way, into the recesses of the stadium for a moment. But God also created, we can see there at the end of chapter one, God created two glory-giving, love-receiving, made-in-the-image-of-God teammates. You would know them as Adam and Eve, and they had those names on the back of their uniforms out on the playing field. And God didn't put them in the stands, he put them on the playing field. And God, in that time, he told them to multiply and, and, and to fill the stadium, fill the field with more, just like you as glory-giving, love-receiving, made-in-the-image-of-God being. And while those two were right where God had placed them in the beginning, the, uh, the leader uh, of the, uh, uh, let's call him the snake dragon, the dragon snake, slithered out on the field. And he played with the two players in their head. And uh, sad to say, um, the two created in the image of God teammates they bit it. Um, maybe we could even say literally. And it was at that time the clock of redemption history began. The time clock started. I need for us to understand this, that the, the war that's being played in the stadium and played on this field is 
always been a war about the dragon snake against the Godhead. It's always been about that. Listen, those that are on the playing field, uh, those created in the image of God and all that is created by God, all of that is just pure collateral damage for this dragon snake's war with God. He could care less about Adam and Eve. He just knew that they were created in God's image and because he couldn't take God out, he goes to the next layer and takes what God created and goes after them. Not because he cares about them, but because he hates God. And the game begins. Genesis 3. They sin. And we find that in this, the offspring of the woman a child would eventually come and enter the game. You see, God had a plan before the defeat ever came into the game. God had already knew what was going to happen. And so he, he tells you, an offspring of the woman at some point, a child would enter in the game. And, and while the dragon snake would lay a, blows, a bruising blow on that child, the child born of the woman would lay a lethal blow on the dragon snake. And as a result of sin, there are now two teams on the field of play. Let's call them the lion lambs. One team and the other team is the dragons. The lion lambs are made up of a triad of, let's call them Hall of Fame set-apart coaches who always work in perfect unison, having total knowledge, total power, total control over the game. The Dragons only has one coach. He thinks he's equal to the triad of coaches, but he's nothing like them. He wants to show himself as though he's equal, but he's nothing like them. He's pure evil. He's pure wickedness beyond imagination. And because of sin, all start out on Team Dragon. Yet there is an invitation that was secured by a promised provision of the Lamb to change teams, if you would so choose. And the game clock of God's redemptive history begins clicking away. Early in the first quarter of God's redemptive history, Genesis 7. Genesis 7. In Genesis 7, we find that the dragons appear to be mounting what would be maybe like a total blowout of the game. But the lion-lamb coaching triad pulls out, uh, let's call it play reboot, and they flood the stadium. You with me? You don't seem like it. You with me? They flood the stadium, okay? It's a reboot time, and God kind of like starts over again with it. Genesis 15, take a look there. Player Abraham is divinely selected by God and promised to start a unique people raised up for God and to be sent out. Out on the playing field, God says, hey, Abraham, look up past the stadium. Do you see the stars in the heavens? I want to raise up a people of more stars in the heavens on this field for my glory. We move to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And how cool is this? A unique people for God is raised up. Raised up in a game that seems like they're absolutely losing it. 
But God raises up a people. Exodus 14, take a peek there. And there we find this unique people of God that has been raised up is actually not just raised up, but they are brought out. And they are brought out. And then we could go through more of the Old Testament. Let's just say Joshua, a unique people for God, are brought in. They're brought into a place. They're given a land. They're given a land, a place that is intended to be a sending place. That was never to be a place where to now cash it out, kick it out, kick it back, take a vacation. The place that God had given them, a promised place, was now to be a place upon which they were then to be able to be impacting the rest of the playing field. Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, major prophets, minor prophets, I'd have to say team lion lambs have had more raised up, sent out failures than successes. It seems as though the allure to self, the allure of the bench, the allure of the things that the dragons team has and how they play the games just seems too enticing to them. And I'll call it this, the first half ends. And the lion, lambs, it looks pretty dismal right now. The second half. The stadium is now filled in the seats with those preceding the ones that are presently on the field of play. Those who have preceded and have been seated in the Dragons Intermediate State Seating Section, I will just say they are not looking very good right now. Those who are on the Lions Lambs sections, boy, do they know how to cheer because it seems like they have every reason to be cheering. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The second half begins. A stunning play in this redemptive story is put into place when the second coach of the Lion Lambs coaching triad and on the back of his shoulders, uh, on his jersey, is the name The Word. In John chapter 1. And The Word became flesh and stepped out onto the field of play. And the heavens rejoice. One minute into the second half, this coach player, the word, is hit with an absolutely bruising blow. In fact, it looks like it's a lethal blow because he's laid out on the field for what, I don't know, it looks like three days. And uh, during it all, the dragons are cheering because they think they've conquered the game while those on the Lions-Lambs team are stunned in silence and horror and fear. But as the word is being carted off the field, shockingly and stunningly, he arises. And before heading off the field, he has a conversation with his players. And after that conversation, he, he steps off the field onto the sidelines at the right hand of the first coach, right where he should be. And friends, what seemed to be a total disaster was actually the game plan from the very beginning. 
We move to the fourth quarter. Two minutes are left in redemptive history on the game clock. The Dragons seem to be in clear control of the game and assured a win. And then the two-minute whistle is blown. That timeout before the final two minutes ensue. Both teams head to their sidelines. Dragons gather around their wicked coach. The Lions gather around their coaching triad on the sideline. Uh, there's no time to, 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 to go get a drink. There's no time for the bench. There, there's time uh, to spend with the lion lamb. And you look into the players of the lion's lamb and you can see in many of them concern and dis- discouragement, a sense of possible losses ensuing. Many are beat up. Some are confused. Some are sadly distracted like they don't even have any clue what's really even going on. Yet some are standing strong in humble confidence and they look into his eyes. And he begins to talk to them. His team is at a critical point. So what he does is he reminds them to pull out uh, to pull out their game book, and so they go to section sixty six. How many books are in the Bible? Okay, they go to the last one. What's the name of it? They go there, and just in this imaginary process of hopefully creative thinking here. He walks them through this book. Revelation 1.19. He reminds them of the, what I think is the layout of the book. What's been chapter 1. What is chapters 2 and 3. And what will be chapters 4 and following. Yes, there are shadow applications for God's warriors who have suffered through hard times from early in the second half of of time of redemptive history, Revelations 2 and 3. Yet the full realization of what was told back then is, is not yet come to full realization, in my opinion, as we see in the book of Revelation. I think they're yet to come in the closing couple minutes of time, whatever period of time that might be whatever God chooses. Look at Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4, the lion lamb looks at his players and he first begins by reminding them who's in charge. And he reminds them and tells them about the scene of the father, the first person of the Trinity, the first coach on the team of triad of coaches. And he tells them of the scene that that there the father is in the throne. And around the throne are four living ones. Uh, Whatever they are, they are amazing uh, entities that God has created. And and then outside of them are the 24 presbyteros that are are all holding crowns, have crowns, of victory crowns, on Stephanus crowns on their heads. And they're all there. And it's like a glass sea as far as the eye can see. Unlike anything anyone's ever seen before. And around the throne and around the one sitting on the throne, is, an, is, is a rainbow encircling the whole thing. And out of the throne, we're told that lightning bolts and thunder and, and John just falls as though he's going to die in it all. 
And then in it, he looks and narrows in chapter 5, and, and he looks and he sees in the right hand of the one who's sitting on the throne, there's a scroll that's there, a scroll that has seven seals on it. Are they end, are they on the top? I don't know, it doesn't matter, there's seven. <laughs> it's a scroll in his hand, and, and the question is, who's worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of the one who's sitting on the throne? And, and they do this uh, amazing race in the mind, and it's like, no one's worthy, no one on earth, no one in heaven, no one's worthy to take the scroll and to put into effect what's in the scroll. And John knows that what's in the scroll contains the information of what's going to happen. And if anyone, if anything of what it says is going to happen, someone has to take it and someone has to implement it. Implement it. And he weeps because no one's worthy. And then he's told, John, don't weep. I appreciate that. John, don't weep. There is one who's worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then we see, who is that? It's not actually in the text a lion, it's called a lamb because the lion is the lamb and the lamb is the lion. And it's the lamb that's been slain right at the beginning of the second half. And he comes and he takes a scroll out of the father's hand Chapter 6, pop, seal number 1 opens. There is one who steps out onto the field of play and brings a false counterfeit piece. Like chapter 13, like the sea beast rising out of the sea that at first looks and smells and tastes like he's bringing real and lasting world peace. But it's not. It's temporary, it's only for a season. By the way, friends, might I say this? Just even this day versus last Sunday is the world not looking for an answer to bring world peace? How interesting. Pop, seal number one. Then pop, seal number two. We see that we are told that this false peace now leaves. How long later? I don't know how long later, but likely not a long period of time later after seal number one. And war and civil strife enters and mankind goes after mankind with an implosion of self-slaughter like has never been seen in world history as we've known it. And do you not just sit here and go, what's going on in our world? Pop, sealed number three. Out of war and out of false peace comes famine. Famine is commonly a close companion to war. Food goes into short supply, the text is talking about. It, it's, out, it's weighed out and rationed. Exorbitant prices ensue. The prices of Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 through 6 represent the costs of 10 times what they were prior to uh, of that day going on. Pop. Then seal number four. Seal number four tells us that a quarter of the earth dies. By the way, there was nothing like that in 70 AD. The fourth writer of Revelation 6 
whether it be the sea beast antichrist alone or under a political national structure, is given authority to kill with sword and famine, pestilence and death by wild beasts. And a quarter of the earth's population dies. Can you imagine? We live in a world right now of about seven and a quarter billion people. A quarter of that is about 1.8 million. That could be represented by the entire continent of North America and Africa dead. And we grieve over the loss of a few hundred and all we grieve deeply over it. But oh friends, this is just a shadow. Seal number five, pop. In all this, the onslaught of war and famine and death includes the widespread killing of those who are on the field playing for the lion lambs. Martyrdom. May I ask this question? Would you be willing to die for Christ? And I mean that very seriously. Seal number six, pop. Cataclysmic cosmic disasters. A great earthquake, the text tells us. The sun goes black, the full blood moon, stars falling from the earth. The heavens are recoiling like a scroll. It's like rolling up, the text tells us. It says that seven groups here are noted. Uh, kings, great ones, generals, rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free. Everyone, they hide, they cry out to the mountain, or they cry out that rocks would fall on them. Uh, it tells us, it's interesting, that rocks would fall because they are experiencing the wrath of the Lamb. They know what's happening. This is more than just normal. Yet so many continue in their hardness of heart. Then Revelation chapter 8, the Lamb opens the seventh seal. Do you see at the beginning of chapter 8? And there is silence. It says for like 30 minutes. Listen, friends, in heaven, if anything we've seen in the book of Revelation, silence is not the norm. And I'm not quite sure in my understanding of the timeline of things, but something big is happening here. Is this the divine lull before the full storm? Is this the dramatic midpoint of things going on here? Could be, I'm not fully sure, but this is a unique point in the silence in heaven. Could this be associated with or around the, the other time frames that I think are given of the sea beast, the, the Antichrist, given 42 months of full reign authority? Could that be starting that process here? Could be, I'm not quite sure. Uh, could the, the aspect of uh, Revelation 11 talking about the holy city, I think is Jerusalem becoming trampled for 42 months, three and a half years. It tells that the Israelites flee for protection for 1,260 days, which is also three and a half years. It tells us that there will be two witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days. I, I think that those are actual two uh, individuals. Uh, honestly, could they be Old Testament prophets brought back? Could be. Or are they two Jewish evangelists like them in this day? Could be that, but I think there are going to be two witnesses who have dramatic effect and, and protection for three and a half years of time. And we're told in chapter 11 that then eventually the Antichrist comes and kills those two and they leave them for dead in the streets. Open, dead in the streets for three days. And then they get up 
and they head out. And I think the heavens are going, booyah. And the Revelation tells us about 144,000 Jewish sealed servants. I think it is that. 12,000 from the 12 tribes, uniquely raised up and protected by God for his unique God, this unique gospel preaching time. Part of what needs to be seen in all this time is the lion is roaring, and at the same time of the lion roars, he is doing a redeeming work because this is the end of it all. And in his heaviest of judgments, he still desires, would anyone come to him? He's doing everything he can, but the heart of man is so depraved and so hard that even after having thousands of years of God's redemptive grace giving, allowing to be played on the field in it, and then when, when it gets heavy and hard through all of this time, man's heart is, we're so hard. Only by the grace of God. And, and then I must get through here. And then in heaven, the seventh seal, we're told seven angels are given, each given a trumpet. That's why I think the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. And we're told that an angel takes a censer in heaven uh, from the altar and throws it out onto the earth. And, and then peals of thunder, lightning, and quake. And Revelation 8 continues. And the trumpet, number one, is blown. Hail and fire. A third of the earth and the trees are burned up. Can you imagine? Then trumpet number two, a huge mass crashes into the sea. A third of the sea and a third of the sea life dies. Trumpet number three, a great star falls from heaven. A celestial body crashes into the earth and a third of the fresh water goes bad and, and people die, the text tells us, because of it. Trumpet number four, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck. A third of creation's light is kept from shining on the earth. The implications of that scientifically in the way we do life today is massive. And then Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, an imagery once again of this idea that God is trying to call people. And in it, this eagle flying over cries in a loud voice over this, declaring, if you will, uh, the truths of God. And he includes a woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other three final trumpets. And trumpet number five, woe number one, Revelation chapter nine, some kind of demonic locust or something represented in the text as demonic demonic locusts are released from the bottomless pit and are told to bring scorpion-like torment on those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead for a time of five months and it's so painful people long to die but they can't die. Then trumpet six, woe number two, some type of massive demonic driven army, human or unearthly, I'm not sure, is unleashed to kill the rem a remaining third of mankind. And the rest of mankind who are not killed did not repent, the text tells us, nor give up worshiping demons and idols, nor sorceries, nor sexual immorality. Oh, how total depravity is such a hold on mankind. The, the dragon has done a big work. And then trumpet number seven, Revelation 11, woe number three. 
loud voices in heaven say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 presbyteros go face down. The temple is opened in heaven. The ark is seen. Lightning peals of thunder and heavy hail come out. And I think the seventh trumpet is the bulls. And just real quickly here, bowl number one, poured out onto the unredeemed and they get harmful, painful, intense, oozing, burning, festering, incurable ulcer sores. Bowl number two, the oceans are fouled. Sea living things die. Bowl number three, poured into the rivers and springs. They are fouled. Bowl number four, scorching fierce sun uh, scorches people with fire. Bowl number five, the kingdom darkness poured out into the beast and his kingdom and is plunged into darkness. And in their anguish, the unredeemed curse God again, the text tells us. Bowl number six, they assemble for battle. It's poured out onto the great Euphrates. Its waters dry up, opening the way for the kings of the east to assemble with the other kings of the nations. They gather in what's called Armageddon. And in the text, we are told that they gather together to go to war against God. Imagine that. It's not war against each other. It's gathered together as the nations to war the one that brought this living hell in their view. Bowl number seven. The seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air and a loud voice comes out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. The Babylon nations, Babylon nations fall, islands flee, the mountains disappear in the fury of the wrath of God, and they curse God. Chapter 17 and 18, and the king's watcher go down, as do the merchants, as do the shipmasters. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, no more, no more. In chapter 19, The great multitude in heaven cry hallelujah. The 24 presbyteros fall down. The four living ones fall down, worshiping the Father, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And heaven is opened, and behold, a white horse with a rider whose eyes are like flames of fire. With, with on his head are diadems. His name is written that no one knows. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He's called the word of God. And with him are the armies of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. The war is over before it ever begins. Because on his robe, on his thigh, is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. And the sea beast, the Antichrist, is thrown into eternal hell. And the false prophet, of which I didn't even make reference to, he is also thrown into eternal hell. And then I think chapter 20 leads us into a thousand year period of time 
on the earth where the dragon serpent, Satan, is bound for a thousand years. Christ rules for a thousand years until Satan is released for a short time at the end of that to mislead those who are unredeemed on the earth during that time. How could there be unredeemed on the earth during that time? I'm just going to back it out this way. Revelation doesn't tell us. I think there's some good conversations to be had about that, but I'm just going to say this. If God says it, I'll leave it in his hands. And in a final war attempt against God after the thousand-year millennium, again, telling of the grand natural depravity of man, understand anyone redeemed in Christ is not lost. But those who are not go to war against God. and Satan then is thrown into eternal hell with the sea and the land beasts. The unredeemed of history then stand before Christ for their final accounting at the great white throne judgment. Remember that? The books and the book is opened. And judgment ensues. Death and Hades are thrown into eternal hell. And lastly, any of those whose names were not found in the book. And Revelation 20 ends. And the whistle sounds. The two minute warning time is over. Back to the field. Question. Players on the Lion Lambs team. After hearing everything that I think in the big picture of things that Revelation contains, I ask this question. After hearing all of this, how are you going to return to the field? How are you going to return to the playing field that we are on? What's to be our thinking as we head back out, we've just heard about the end of the war. How does the end of the war story impact our being in the now war? Four quick things. Number one, we return to the field knowing that we are in a war. Hear me. Careers, all these kinds of things, they matter. But hear me. This is not Disneyland. The news confirmed that. This is a war that we reside in, in the grand picture of redemptive history. This is no Disneyland for our little things. Our stories reside within his story. And in it, we go out in a war, and we are in a now war. And when we know that, we understand that, that's why bad things happen. Because the dragon snake is at war with the Godhead, and we are on the playing field that's taking place, created in God's image, and he hates him, and so he can't take him out, so he will try and take us out to get back at him. You got it? And so we are in a war, and yet we know we know that the lion lamb, oh, sorry. We know that the lion lamb will right all wrong. And for some right now who feel like you're living in hell, in Christ, he's going to win 
faith and perseverance. This is not all there is. This series has blown me. Secondly, let's return to the field, calling people to Christ. Let's return to the field, calling them to change teams. Third, return to the field knowing chapters 21 and 22 are coming. If you don't know what they are, we're going to be in them for the, through the end of the year. Glory to God. Because I need some hope. And fourth, we return to the field awaiting his end war. Let me just say it this way. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, come. Lord, but until then, we press ahead. Faith and perseverance, we press ahead in this war. This is no game, this is no fantasy world. This is reality. And oh God, I would pray if there's anyone in this room that is not on your team, they have not driven the stake in the ground and received Christ as their Savior and turned and repented and pursuing after the Lamb. Oh God, I would pray today by the Spirit of God, you would just inform them, convict them, drive them. God, don't let up on them until they come to the place where they receive Christ as their Savior. We want them on your team. And Lord, in it all, oh, we marvel at you. The end of war reminds us that we can persevere in faith in the now war. I pray we would do that. Pray for some of those who are really hurting right now. Oh, God. Help them. I pray for believers around the world who are in jail, death row because of the follow. Oh God, give them strength. And Lord, it causes us to make us to look forward to you to come. Come, Lord. Oh, right? Come, Lord. We pray, come. Come, Lord. Please come. 